the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today we have the pleasure of ellen chiza joining us uh for our audience members who aren't familiar with you uh do you mind introducing a little bit about yourself and what is your background yeah absolutely i went to engineering school for undergrad so i would say that makes it sound a little bit like i'm not an accidental engineer except for the fact that when I went, I was really a lot more interested in learning how engineers think than actually going into engineering as my chosen job. And so when I graduated, I actually went straight into product and I was a PM at Microsoft and then at Kickstarter in New York. Then I went and did the first half of my MBA at Harvard Business School, led product for a travel company called Lola. And for the last two years, I have been working on a new developer tools company with my co-founder, Paul Baker. I know you are well familiar with making complicated tools simpler as a product manager. Uh, do you mind sharing with our audience a little bit about your experience coming to product management from an engineering education as opposed to the other way around? Yeah, absolutely. So I think going to engineering school, I was really interested in thinking about how to break down problems well and solve them in a systematic manner, which is the thing I like about engineering and is also super relevant to product. The thing I wasn't expecting about engineering and particularly software engineering at the time was how many little things would go wrong that would prevent me from doing the work that I wanted to be doing. So simple things like libraries getting updated and then needing to do a bunch of dependency management changes before I could start working on what I wanted to work on or <laughs> making some sort of syntax error like missing a semicolon or deleting something and leaving a curly brace in and then not being able to figure out what was wrong for hours. And so as much as I loved the process of thinking like an engineer, I did not love all of these tiny hassles that kept happening to me. And that was really what drew me into product, where I got to do more of the high-level problem solving without beating my head against the wall every day. Fair enough. Fair enough. I know another topic that um, you're passionate about is uh, prospective employees uh, or job seekers and working on side projects outside of full-time gigs. Um, can you speak to that a little bit in regards to what are, what are the benefits of people working on side projects outside of maybe their full-time gigs? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I always have to caveat this. I love doing side projects, but I also have to acknowledge that that is a factor that happens just because I happen to have the time to do it. And I know I've had tons of friends who either had kids or were supporting family members in a way that didn't give them the, side, the time to work on more software outside of work. This isn't for everyone. Um, but especially if you're in college and you have a lot of opportunities to do projects with your friends, or if you're earlier in your career and you're thinking, well, I could either watch TV or do a project, I would always lean on the side of doing a project. And so one of the things I've always loved about doing side projects is it's something that lets you learn new things. And so in college for me, this is all about learning different version control systems. Um, it was before we actually knew what a steady answer was. The first time I used Git was for a side project. Same thing, the first time I tried Heroku, side project. First time I built a Rails application, side project. And so it's a really low-key way to expose yourself to a bunch of different tools and technologies that you might later be able to bring into your working environment or you might decide that you want to spend more time on. Totally. One of the topics that we've discussed on the show previous is people having the uh, the question, what programming language should I learn first or, or what tools should I learn first? And one of the pieces of advice that we've often given is you could look at the jobs listings that you're interested in and see what are you, what are the employers you kind of most aspire to work at or work for. And it tend, we, I, I found in my personal experience that that 
that tends to be a good starting point. If somebody's curious about even where to start with a side project, like you mentioned, Heroku or Git, uh, maybe maybe check out <laughs> employers you, you aspire to work for and and look at their job descriptions. But any any uh, any specific side projects you mind sharing about that that uh, you mentioned the skills you you obtained from working on them, but uh, are there other other ancillary benefits to side projects when it comes to building a career in software engineering or product management? Yeah, for sure. I think this depends a lot on how you come into engineering. But I think one thing that people forget about or a misconception is this idea that engineers are working alone or you're sitting in a dark room by yourself staring at like lines of text on screen forever. And while that's part of being an engineer, a big part of engineering is also working with your teammates, doing things together, taking on different roles within projects. And I think when you're doing projects with other people, that gives you a chance to work on your collaboration skills as well as just say learning a new technology. And I think that was one of the things I really enjoyed about doing side projects early on. For sure, for sure. I know this is a hot topic in job interviewing for software engineers is how to properly assess uh, you know, skills for the job or, or, or a role, culture fit. And I'm curious, I know you've interviewed a large number of people over over the years. And for our audience members that might be job seekers, what what do you what what would you prescribe to be a a, a set of guiding best practices for for technical interviews? Yeah. So from the job seeker side, I think you always want to be thinking about how are you going to share what you did in a way that really highlights the value you provided to the team, what you were able to build, what you learned, and sort of your philosophy on what you built as a software engineer. And so I would say, even before you go into into interviews, some interviews will be specific challenges, of course, but others will be about work that you've already done. And so I would spend time thinking through the stories of what you built and what you want to say about it. So that goes from Framing the problem. When you were given the problem, did it come from your manager? Did it come from a product team? What shape was it in when you were given it? How did you think through what you're going to build and why you're going to make those contributions? What were hard trade-offs you made during the course of the project? If you were doing the same project again, what might you be do differently this time? I think all interviews don't expect interviewers don't necessarily expect you to be perfect when for every project that you've done, but they want to hear that you're thoughtful about your work and you're continuing to develop as an engineer. And then what was the impact of shipping that thing? Were there things that happened operationally after you shipped it that you hadn't foreseen? How did users respond to what you had built? Was that meaningful to you? And so having those stories is really a way to showcase the full breadth of what you did. So for skills assessments, what uh, from the interviewer's side of the table is kind of the, the <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to say state of the art, but... Uh, what, what are some of the best practices for an interviewer who might be interviewing uh, maybe entry-level software engineering candidates? For sure. So I think, thing this isn't really state-of-the-art, because I think you wrote the essay about five years ago, but there was an engineer at Etsy, his last name was Levin, who wrote an essay about mapping the potato instead of about the idea of does this person pass the bar? And so I think a best practice for interviewers is always to be trying to let the candidate show they are best at whatever skill you're trying to assess rather than trying to catch them out on a gotcha or a small error or something like that. And so I think you're always trying to help the candidate succeed in the interview with you. And that doesn't mean telling them the answer, but that does mean 
making it a welcoming environment, making sure you check in with them when you come to the room to make sure they have water and they're comfortable or if they need a break for some reason, um, and trying to help make the experience as comfortable as possible for them so they can do their best at showing you their technical skill. Definitely, definitely agreed. And I think one of the things to reassure about the job process or the job interview process for people who might be feeling discomfort about interviewing is that there's a lot of stuff of the nature that you described earlier with semicolons and open closing parentheses that I honestly, I don't think a great deal of interviewers care so much about because in, in real life on the job, um, if things are really important, there'll be guide rails in place. And if you join in a player without those guide rails, it might be a good opportunity or I mean, that's something hard to vet out as a job applicant before you take a job besides uh, to go through a few, through, go through several jobs. But I'm curious in, in your career so far, uh, working at Microsoft, working at Kickstarter, uh, going through business school, were there any like revelatory experiences you had at each of those jobs that made you look back at the previous one and, and scratch your head at, at why maybe <laughs> the last place you were at didn't have a certain process or uh, even if, even if it wasn't technical, maybe political when it comes to like bug tracking or that kind of thing? Oh yeah, this is a great question. So I think thinking back to Microsoft, one of the things that was hardest for me, especially coming in as a PM and having my core responsibilities not being writing software was the development environment we had was really hard to configure and set up. And that's something that I still think a lot about building dark now. And I think that experience meant that basically every two weeks I would have time to get into the simulator and test things and play with them or write code myself. And every time I would spend an entire day setting it up and it felt like a huge waste of time. And so in contrast, now at dark, our environment takes an hour or two to set up. And most people, when we hire them and they onboard, have shipped code within their first day to production. And so that's definitely a thing that over time I've gone, wow, that really didn't have to be as hard as it was back then. The flip side of that being, at Microsoft, all of the bug tracking was super robust because I was there when we were still shipping software that you would ship and then you didn't have over-the-air updates. So you would ship it and it would be live for three years even. And so when you're thinking about making something that's going to be live for three years, your obsession with quality is very different and you have a lot of specific terminology around how you triage bugs. And in contrast, I think everywhere I've been since then, this is probably right now that we have a lot more flexibility with what we do has been much more loosey-goosey about bugs and you might fix something because it personally bothers you. You might add something midstream because you can and you're already touching that part of the code base. Um, but you definitely don't have that same obsessive every day. We're going to go through all of the bugs that are outstanding and decide what is definitely the most important. And so the upside is more flexibility. The downside is I couldn't guarantee that we only fix the most important bugs every day the way I could working at Microsoft. For sure, for sure. That's something that's a really odd dynamic as new team members get onboarded is oftentimes the newest member being onboarded is asked to be the person to update these docs as they find them to be out of date. And it's such a, a thankless task. I, it's, it's really rough. And I'd imagine at a, at a company like Microsoft, the, the onboarding process starts snowballing as, as they onboard such a high volume of people and the, the documentation drifts from what people who've already been onboarded are, are modifying about how to get 
maybe a development environment setup. I given given that you've had the experience with uh, a harder <laughs> environment, um, what are some of the 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 changes uh, that you guys are implementing at Dark to to make it easier to onboard? Uh, yeah, to make it easier to onboard your guys as users or customers. Oh, yeah. So I guess I'm always very proud of our internal environment that we use to build Dark, which is something that takes a couple hours to get set up. But our actual product is much better than that in that it, uh, so I guess since I haven't mentioned this yet, Dark is a dev tool startup and we are really focused on a holistic experience for building backends much more effectively. And what that looks like is a programming language with its own editor that's browser based and then an infrastructure compiler. So as soon as you write some of your backend code, it's already up and hosted. And so what that means from a practical standpoint for this type of onboarding is I can sit down with you right now and we could get a whole world up and running for you in 15 seconds or less. And so compared to onboarding to Rails, like I was saying with the side projects earlier, I think the first time I set up Rails, it took me two hours and that was like state of the art at the time. And I'm sure I made a ton of mistakes that not everyone would have made, but it was still like an investment to get going with the project. And Dark has really taken a ton of that out where you can sit down and start writing product code immediately. Totally, totally. Are, are many of the, the users in your target market for using Dark, and, Dark as a, as a back end uh, building UIs on mobile? Or is there a fair amount of people out there making web apps that you guys hope to target with Dark? It's both. So I think the nice thing about having a web app is you don't have to have the idea of going through an app store review process. So back to the side project thing, I actually just built and shipped to test flight an emoji mood tracking app in Dark. And the easiest part of it for me was the part that was on the back end in Dark. It probably, it's a pretty simple back end, but I think it probably only took me a couple hours altogether to get my database set up, have my environment, write all of the logic. And that was kind of with me figuring out the product as I went. Whereas in contrast, I had a bug with the first version I shipped for iPhone X, where the notch meant that the like bar at the top was impossible to submit. And so for me to track down that bug from my React Native app um, and then get it deployed into the App Store took me three hours. And now I'm still waiting on the review side of things. Um, yeah, that's brutal. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, it makes me love Dark that much more because that's the easy part of my application now, which is great. And then it also makes me wish that I was doing it on the web side instead of on the mobile side so I could have it to my beta customers already. When it comes to uh, selecting a side project, there there's the heuristic of, okay, what are employers hiring for? But when it comes to, like you were describing, going through the, the App Store review process, is would you would you recommend people who are coming to uh, considering a side project to make a, a native mobile app? <laughs> it sounds it sounds like maybe maybe your desire to do a, a React Native app might be driven by your guys's needs with the business. But do you think somebody who's evaluating side projects should uh, choose a mobile app? Interesting. So I would actually say, and again, this is very much my angle as a product person. I am really motivated by building things that I want to use or I see a clear use case for. And then I pick the technologies based on what I think will be most effective for what I want to build. Um, and so for the emoji mood tracking application, since it's about mood tracking, I wanted to be able to do it from a device I had with me all the time. I wanted it to feel really convenient. I wanted to have it on my home screen basically. And so from that angle, it made sense for it to be a mobile application. 
I suppose what I could have done was build a mobile web app and then pin that browser tab to my home screen. But I feel like that experience is never as nice as having a native application. Um, but again, it depends on the project. And so if I was doing something that I felt was better suited to a like web or an experience of sitting at your desk and using the tool, I would definitely go with a web experience instead. For sure. For sure. I think I'd agree. Although I'm a biased party because I don't, I don't know if I've ever gone through the test flight deployment process myself only only through interfacing with coworkers of mine but yeah i i agree that i think the barrier to entry for somebody who might be starting early uh in their software engineering career might be to avoid going through the whole blue of a app store review process i actually uh, i spent an entire half hour debugging like one specific build line command and that was not my favorite half hour of my life so if you can avoid it i think that's probably a good thing oh for sure. Agreed. Yep. Now, one of, one of the things that I, I think I may have heard about Dark for the first time with regards to was your guys' novel proposal to offer money for people to try out your guys' product about a year ago. I was curious if you could share with our audience a little bit about how you guys came up with the idea, maybe uh, what, it, what it morphed into, what are some of the things you guys learned from doing it? Yeah, absolutely. So what we what we did was we decided to write a job description for our first customer. And we wrote it as entrepreneur slash engineer in residence. And so I think that was pretty heavily inspired by, I had worked in an incubator before as an entrepreneur in residence uh, before I worked at Lola. And it's a common thing for people to do in venture capital. And what we really wanted to do was be as close to our customer as possible. And so we knew that there was kind of this framework for people working out of other offices on something they wanted to do. And we wanted someone to be working out of our office on top of our platform. And we also felt that as a new infrastructure play, the infrastructure your software runs on is critically important. And taking a bet on something brand new when you're using a custom programming language in a different environment and all of your infrastructure is operating without you necessarily seeing everything yourself, because the whole point is abstracting it away, that's a the pretty big risk as an early customer. And so... We wanted to make sure that we had someone who was really serious about it, but also that we were appropriately valuing what they were doing along with us. And so we wrote this job posting, we posted it to Hacker News, we shared it to our networks in general, and we actually had 50 people respond within 24 hours who were interested in working with us on it. That's rad. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And it was great customer development because for everyone who responded, uh, I was able to kind of categorize the projects, look at what people were working on, what they were thinking about doing, what functionality they would need and call and talk to them in more depth about what they were interested in and what challenges they were facing with their backend and infrastructure. Was there a kind of a spectrum of the, the experience levels of people who responded to your guys' invite or, or was it uh, all, you know, very experienced or all kind of underqualified? What, what was kind of the skew there? It was super interesting. And so we were looking at both on an experience angle, but also from the angle of what type of business it was. So there were things that were just outside of the realm of what we could do with dark. So people are interested in super cutting edge technologies, or we had some people who are really interested in blockchain related applications. And those were just things we weren't ready to touch with the platform yet. On the other end of the spectrum, there were people who had just been through a bootcamp or had just learning, started learning software development and were excited to be anywhere and writing software, but we felt that they would be much better served by being with a team and working on software projects with other people rather than working alone in our office on something, especially if they didn't already have an idea. 
but there was like a good set of people between those two who were engineers who'd been writing software for a while, who'd used other technologies, who were building something new and didn't want to face a lot of the same pain points again. So th- this question is kind of loaded because I'm guessing dark would be the answer. But if you couldn't answer with dark, what what in your set of toolkit would you reach for first in, in maybe starting a new product? Sure. Yeah. So it would, again, of course, it always depends on what you're trying to build. Um, so I think for me, I wouldn't say I'm lazy, but I like to be efficient. So my go-to is always to reach for what I used most recently. So if I was thinking about something that was mobile, I would probably reach to React Native again. Um, and frankly, a lot of that would be because of the experience with Expo, which is a great set of tooling where it makes it really easy for you to go from looking at your code to running your code on your phone or running it in any type of iPhone on the simulator. And so I would happily reach for React Native and Expo again because of that. Um, if I was doing something that was a single page app, especially that was front-end focused and didn't need very much, or say I was building a blog from scratch, I'd probably reach for something like Gatsby.js and Netlify, which is actually what uh, Dark's homepage is hosted on. I really like that tooling setup as well. Um, but like, frankly, if I were to think about how am I going to host a complicated backend application, uh, something that, say, needs cron or needs a callback service, I wouldn't know where to start. And actually, I built something much like my emoji application before when I didn't have Dark, and I never shipped it to other people because of those types of problems. And um, that's why I think this is such a big problem for people today. Oh, no doubt. I, there's a, there's totally a decision paralysis that I think a lot of people who are listening probably can relate to. And hearing hearing about options like Dark are it's it's uh, a good. I'd imagine you guys cater really strongly to people who are coming to a new idea. Maybe they're iOS developers or like you mentioned, web developers who don't have a great deal of experience in backend development, who uh, you guys give them a really easy quick start. Uh, It actually, one of the things that I think is cool is it goes a little bit beyond that. I tend to talk more about that angle just because that's my experience as a PM who's always wanted to have better backend tooling. But because we have the language and the editor and the infrastructure together, we're able to show people more things than they might be able to see in operating system from the beginning otherwise. Where since we have everything together, we can actually show you a really interesting architectural view of all of your code. Or like while you're looking at your code, you can see live requests coming in and work with those. And so it gives you the ability to do stuff on your backend that you might not be able to do even if you were an experienced backend developer. For sure, for sure. Uh, One final question I've got for you with regards to uh, formal education is you mentioned attending Harvard Business School and only attending for one year. I was curious, maybe for our audience who are also curious, is kind of how it came down to decision-making wise that you decided to apply and, and attend business school. And then also maybe what uh, were the decision-making factors that led you to bail out early and, and go back into the job market? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you've probably already gotten a feel for this during this episode, but I really love learning new things. And so I got the opportunity to apply to Harvard Business School while I was still an undergrad. And at the time, I felt like I knew a lot about how to build stuff and how to build stuff that I liked, but I didn't necessarily know how to build stuff in a way that was financially sustainable for myself and for the other people who were working with me. And so that was one of my big motivating factors for going to business school was having this additional lens of how our 
economy values the work that we build. And so then once I was there, the experience is a, a very intense one, especially socially. Uh, but I think I really enjoyed the case method and seeing so many examples of this is the situation a company is in, what should they do in order to solve these problems? And similar to the more things you build in software, the better judgment you have about how to fix the next problem. The more cases you read about businesses, the more things you have to think about when you're faced with your next challenge. And so I really enjoyed that experience. And I would have been happy to have done the second year, except for I ended up in this internship role where I was an entrepreneur in residence. And when I started working on the project that I was doing as an EIR, we decided to turn that into the full-time travel company, Lola, where Paul English, who founded Kayak, was CEO. And I had this opportunity to work with a founder I really respected on a product that I loved. And so when you're thinking about that career-wise, it's just, it's a really hard trade-off to make but I value making things as much as I value learning. And I felt like I could do both at Lola. So I really wanted to stay there. Fair enough, fair enough. On the topic of the, the case model and business schools, have you found any parallel between the case model of studying a business and its executives' decision-making and maybe some of the decision-making that engineers are making on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, for sure. I think... Really, anytime someone's making a decision, it's about gathering all of the data that you need to make the decision, figuring out all of the relevant pieces of information, weighing them against each other, and then deciding to take a path forward, and then reflecting back on why you've done that. And so I'd say in many ways, the case method feels a lot like a engineering postmortem for a specific moment in time. And so postmortems, of course, we obviously do a lot when something goes down, but we also do them for projects. And I would say cases feel a lot more like the project version of that. In postmortems, at least as I understand them in DevOps, is the concept of a, a blameless postmortem, one where no one is assumed to be guilty of anything, uh, nor should anyone expect to be blamed at the at the conclusion of the postmortem. But in in business case, in or in business school cases, is there ever ever blame ascribed to poor decisions or or people failing to locate information that might have, you know, saved the business or, or caused a, a much more positive business outcome. I, I, I wonder about this because um, this is definitely a cultural thing that I've seen in, in different employers is just the level of blamelessness and the level of presumed innocence is, is really different depending on the situation. Yeah. I think the big distinction is that when you're doing a blameless postmortem within a company, all of the people involved are in the room. And so you want to maintain your working relationships with those people. You've obviously already decided that they are a valuable member of your team. And so at that point, the main goal is working better together. And there's not much point in blaming anyone because that'll just make them probably less effective. In, and also usually when a postmortem happens, enough things have gone wrong that you wouldn't say it's like one person's fault or one thing caused the problem. It's usually an amalgamation of many things and many people. The difference in a case is that you're 90 people sitting in a room discussing something uh, and you've worked the people who did the work. And it's usually a little bit of a longer time scale and there are a bunch of different things going on. And so as a learning tool, frequently people will take a specific hard position on it's entirely this person's fault or this was the key thing. And what evolves through the discussion is you get that same holistic perspective that is, doesn't ascribe blame to a single person, but an individual in the classroom might as a device for progressing the conversation. That makes a lot of sense. I, for our audience that aren't so familiar with cases and business schools, 
is it is it the case that not to pun there <laughs> is it is it the case that uh, in some of these case reviews in your business school classes that the actual decision makers are present to to talk about or to share information that the, the class might uh, uh, use in in understanding the case yeah so this is actually something that I think is almost terrifying. Um, and I would be really interested to see how it feels if anyone ever wrote a case about us in dark. But the protagonist is often invited to visit the class and see the case taught, and they cannot speak during the case. And so usually the discussion will go on for 60 to 75 minutes, and then at the end, the protagonist will be able to share more information about what happened. But frequently it means that you're sitting there and listening to a bunch of 20-something smart people who have not necessarily worked in your industry judge all of your actions, which like frankly feels pretty brutal to me from the perspective of protagonist. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, are, is the is the guest often hidden behind a screen yep. or are they, you know, just sitting through it? You can, they're sitting through it. You can see them right in front of you. They often bring colleagues. Sometimes you'll see them passing notes to their colleagues about something someone says, but it, it's super interesting. Yeah, this this has crazy parallels to to software engineering and and DevOps in some ways. I mean, there's no formal schooling that I'm aware of that does this kind of a model with, you know, production downtime <laughs> in a computer science education where maybe the DevOps you know director comes to a computer science classroom and uh, hears some twenty year olds discussing what they would do if. AWS West was down, <laughs> but one could imagine it. And it's, it's really sobering to, to think about how somebody without context about your situation might, uh, <laughs> might judge a, a software engineering business's decision-making. That is really interesting though, because you could think about it from the perspective of what if we had a customer who suddenly went viral, what would our infrastructure do? Would we be able to respond? What would fail first? All of those sorts of questions. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. Well, Aside from the the twenty something uh, students' perspectives on maybe a business, uh, one of the topics I know is super uh, probably important to all the roles you've ever you've ever held is how to get customer feedback versus versus student feedback. And I'm wondering for audience that are curious about working at a big company like a Microsoft through working at a startup like Dark, what are some of the mechanisms that companies on the spectrum of size and maturity have for soliciting customer feedback? Like you mentioned, uh, seeking out and paying a cu paying customers to give you guys feedback on Dark. Uh, does that work at the Microsoft scale or, or how, does, how does it change? Yeah, that's, there's a huge range of how you can do user research. So I think the very formal side is you have a user testing laboratory and you have specific eye tracking software and you do like a very detailed analysis of how people are using a specific application. And that is something that you usually will have access to at a university that's a big research area or at a major company like Microsoft. Um, and so obviously the upside of that is you have a lot of very detailed feedback, which can be good depending on where you are in the development process. Um, the downside of that, of course, is it doesn't happen all of the time. You have to like find all of the people. You can only ask so many questions. It's very focused. Um, bigger companies also have more formal ethnographic programs where they'll send a few people out and they will go to a specific region and they will interview and work with people in their homes. And again, super interesting. You learn a ton, but probably pretty expensive to have three on-staff researchers and fly them somewhere to meet with a bunch of people. 
definitely. The, the, <laughs> the way flip side of that is the kind of user research that I really actually enjoy a lot. And that's making sure you just work it into your life as someone who is interested in the problem. So when I worked at Lola, like whenever I was hanging out with a friend, I would ask them about their upcoming travel and how they booked it and how they were thinking about it. And it didn't sound like a creepy user interview, like you're allowed to socially ask your friends about vacation. And the great thing about engineers is you are allowed to socially ask them about what they're working on at work, what's frustrating, how they're building stuff, because we all love talking about it. And so with Dark, same thing. I spend a lot of time talking to my friends about what they're working on and building and why. So uh, I realize that this is a, a topic of like how how guarded are people about what they're working on. But one of the things I found with running a podcast is that there are plenty of people who work at very name brand employers who feel so little sovereignty over representing themselves that they um, might not be allowed to talk about <laughs> what they work on. You mentioned how engineers often can socially talk more about what they're working on than maybe other uh, employees within an org, but um, are there any peculiarities to how to get people to share information when they might not feel reassured that you will keep this information confidential, if you know what I mean. Oh, that's interesting. I feel like I basically never want to know anything confidential about what people are doing. Um, I'm interested in kind of whatever they feel like telling me. And so sure, I don't I don't want anyone telling me their trade secrets. I don't want anyone telling me about upcoming product launches. I don't tell any, want anyone telling me about like secret pricing strategy. I want people to be like, oh yeah, we made like this improvement to our internal tool and it reduced my deploy time. And so most companies their secret business information is not about how long is the engineer waiting for their deploy to run. Um, I'm sure there are companies that feel that way, probably like very tools, that, like companies that work on deployment as a business. But for the average software engineer, that's not something that the CEO or the board or anyone would be concerned about them talking about. Definitely, definitely. Makes sense. Well, Ellen, I figure we should take a moment to plug Dark. Obviously, you guys are hiring, um, and we can obviously include a link in the show notes to your guys' jobs page. But for audience members that might be interested, do you mind giving a, a little pitch about uh, people who might be interested in using your guys' product or jobs-wise? Yeah, absolutely. So if you are a front-end engineer who has something you want to build in the back-end or infrastructure side, and you're sitting there being like, I don't know what tool to use, there are so many options. I think you'd probably like Dark. It feels a lot like building a front end and it's easy to set up. Or if you're a backend engineer, especially if you're already working on something that has a bunch of microservices and you want to try out something new for the next one, Dark is a great option for that as well. And you're kind of able to see some of the front end benefits while writing your backend code, which I really enjoy. And so I think those are really the two cases that'd be great. Well, uh, I'll include a link in the show notes. Uh, People can find you on Google, uh, Dark Lang. Uh, Ellen, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.